Episode 281 of the No Proscenium Podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you from the No Pro headquarters, a.k.a. the kitchen table here in Los Angeles. This week on the show, the third and final part of our series, XR Live Theater and VR, coming to you. That means we have our guest hosts, uh, regular guest host of the show, Catherine Yu, the executive editor of No Proscenium, and creative technologist and author Stephanie Riggs, uh, whose book, The End of Storytelling, The Future of Narrative in the Storyplex, is available. Uh, Both of them will be joining me in the hosting duties. Each of us has our own segment, and we will give you the breakdown and the order in just a bit. But first, a couple of announcements. We have not one, but two Two community events going on, very laid back community events, by the way, going on this weekend. First, if you are listening to this on Friday, January 29th, uh, before 5 p.m. Pacific, uh, and you have a pass to the Sundance Film Festival, which if you've been listening to the show, I think there's a good chance you do. The Explorer Passes, which let you into uh, the New Frontier Gallery uh, to engage with all the material there, 14 different pieces in the New Frontier. Plus, it lets you roll around the social spaces that Active Theory has created uh, that are accessible via both browser and VR I'll be hanging out in the place known as Film Party, which is the bar and lounge. I'll be over by the bar. Uh, There's a big tree in the middle. Uh, You can find me there. Uh, Look for me. You can see my name. My body will look like everyone else's. My face will look like me. Um, You can find me there at 5 o'clock. We're going to do a little happy hour action. Uh, Very informal. Totally unofficial. Uh, Hopefully we won't get kicked out. If we do get kicked out, we'll go to a different part of... uh of the setup and uh, I'll, I'll leave some notes around letting people know where we are. Uh, so that's going on today at five o'clock tomorrow. And this, there will be a link to this. If you happen to be one of those people who's messing around with the clubhouse app, I know, I know I have my major reservations as well, but I have had a couple of good interactions, uh, mostly thanks to our friend, Jesse Damiani, uh, and there's there's something to the way Clubhouse is working things on one end that are terrible uh, and on another end that are really interesting. There's kind of a, a ease of drop in, drop out. It feels uh, I had this experience the other night where it just felt like we were hanging in our living rooms talking to each other, which, you know, is something we can't really do right now. So uh, there's something to it. And staying with the Sundance theme at 10.30 a.m. on Saturday the 30th, again Pacific time, so that'd be 11.30 a.m. mountain time, uh, Sundance time, uh, going to do a little informal brunch meetup. I'm going to open up a room, uh, hunt me down in there, and uh, yeah, come kick it. This is part of our um, kind of social stuff we do for our Patreon backers. And usually those are done in our Discord or they are uh, in, in like a private space somewhere. Uh, we have office hours and happy hours every week. 
and uh, office hours in the Discord and happy hours are starting to kind of move around. But this week, because of Sundance, because knowing that some of you would be there uh, and, you know, to some degree last minute, decided to open up to everybody. Um, maybe two people will show up. Maybe 200 people will show up. You never know with these things. Uh, but if you're at Sundance, and these are Sundance focused. Uh, so uh, if you haven't been checking stuff out, if, if it's not your bag, eh, you know, don't. Don't waste your time because uh, we'll be on those topics. But if you are rolling around, uh, please swing through. We'd love to hear uh, what you've been seeing and what you think of everything. All right. Speaking of the Patreon, which is where we usually do this stuff, uh, that happens. Uh, you get you get access to that with just $2. $2 uh, helps us run everything we do. We are up to bum, 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 bum. I was just looking at this a minute ago. We are up to 349 backers. So we are one backer away, one backer away from uh, 350. Uh, we are very, very far away from being completely self-sustaining, but uh, $2 a month is all it takes to, uh, to unlock our social aspects. And uh, in help us get a little closer to being self-sustaining, which uh, I know can be a big ask. But maybe you, uh, you know, maybe you did uh, did really well in the stonk market this week and uh, are wondering what to do with the million dollars you made on GameStop. Well, uh, I, got, I got a nice, shiny, sustaining backer placker. Sustaining backer placker? Anyway, our sustaining backers are Ari Hurston, Brittany, Elaine, Emily Gillette, Lonnie Hanson, Paul F., Mark Baltazar, Samuel Mystery, Sydney Guillory, and Jan Budman. And the coffee is provided by our friends at Yes Please Coffee. Yes Please Coffee. I said Yes Please. That's how I say it. Yes Please Coffee, uh, a coffee delivery service that our, our good friend Tonks runs. And uh, I won't be hanging out with Tonks this weekend because I'll be hanging out with you. So there you go. That's how much I love you. I'm missing my, my Saturday morning coffee. All right, let's get into the lineup for this time out. Segment one, I've got the hosting duties. I've got actor Dasha Kittredge, who you may know from The Under Presents, or if you're here in LA, you may have seen her at one of the many delusion shows over the years. Director and choreographer Brandon Powers also joins us. Queer Skin's arc is currently available on uh, in I believe in Viveport on, on, on VR or on Steam. Uh, double check that <laughs> yourself. Uh, Queer Skins has made the festival circuit over the years. Director and sound designer S.B. Proctor rounds out our trio. S.B. is the director of Girl Icon, which is part of Oculus for Good 2.0, and has also been doing a lot of directing of staging of plays uh, in spaces like Alt Space. Uh, so that is my trio. The second segment is going to be headed up by Stephanie Riggs. Stephanie's got a Brendan A. Bradley of the NYU Integrative Technology Lab. Brendan is also the creator of Future Stages, which is a black box theater you can um, use on Mozilla Hubs. She also has Tim Kashani, founder of Apples and Oranges Arts, uh, who were one of the producers of Finding Pandora X, which was at the Venice International Film Festival. A performer in that 
is Deirdre Lyons, who rounds out Stephanie's third. Uh, Deirdre is an immersive actor and an immersive VR producer, most recently of a Krampusnacht piece that ran in December. And the LA scene knows Deirdre from many a JFI production here in town. Uh, Finally, the last segment is Catherine's and Catherine is joined by three innovators in the digital performance realm. And that would be a Marinda Botha, uh, who's a voice artist and a performer in the meta movie, uh, Beth Cates, who's creative director at playground studios in Canada. Beth is a lighting set costume and projection designer and digital dramaturg and did the world and stage lighting design for finding Pandora X. And finally, Ari Tar, a performer and consultant, and uh, sort of the, the the lead performer in Adventure Lab's Dr. Crumb School for Disobedient Pets. One last thing before we go, I forgot the name of our latest backer, and that is Stephen Zulanis. Thank you so much, Stephen, for being our latest Patreon backer. See, sometimes everything gets out of order, but I still get it in. That's how it goes. All right, I'm going to go back to this coffee. You're going to listen to the show, and I'll see you on the other side. <laughs> Hey everybody, Noah here again. You know my voice. Joining me today is... Hi everybody, my name is Aspi. I'm a sound designer and media artist working in live performance and storytelling. Hi, my name is Dasha Kittredge. I am an immersive theater performer and more recently a VR immersive theater performer and a creative director at meta for You. Hi everyone, I'm Brandon Powers. I'm a creative director and choreographer working across physical and virtual space focused on embodiment and liveness. And liveness is the key to this part of our discussion today. Of course, uh, for this whole episode, we are talking about liveness. We are talking about how the live aspect of VR theater differentiates it from other VR forms. Um, And this this is like the the secret sauce here so i don't know i don't know who maybe wants to like jump in first uh dasha you're you're a, a you're a vractor as we like to call them so and you spend you spend a lot of time having done uh, immersive theater uh which is very very live and and how is this translating into the vr theater stuff it is translating pretty fluidly. I would say that in VR theater, you do have to be a bit more of your own stage manager and lighting designer, and you get a lot of choice of where to bring people around. And for instance, if you, I made this mistake just the other day of bringing people to a place that wasn't very well lit and doing a whole thing there. And later looking back at a video someone recorded, I was like, ah, okay, I need to work on my own uh, stage manager lighting skills as a, uh, as a Vractor. Um, but it, the liveness, there is this component of this is the only time this is ever going to happen. This exact version of whatever it is, the piece of improv or a play, um, that element, that magical feeling of like, this is the only moment that this version of this is happening really does stay and does still carry that same magical feeling. SP, I wondered, you know, you've directed some theater pieces in VR at this point. I'm like, some, that's, uh, that's underplaying it. Uh, I'm wondering if you could talk about, you know, what is it about having a live performer 
um, that, that that makes this endeavor worthwhile versus, say, you know, motion capturing this or or, or filming something or running it in in, a, in a, like a a three sixty film. What is it about having like a live performer when the audience is also present? When it comes to live performance in VR, um, something that's very key is presence, especially when you're dealing with avatar and humanoid forms. Um, It's very common to hear when it comes to VR that feels isolating or you're by yourself or there is... um, there's a lack of like other pe- like a sense of other people or other presences but when you have live performance in VR you have you know people breathing life and breath into these avatar forms that you know then just make the story more more livening you know, there's that knowledge that on the other side of that body, that there is a human being that you are seeing with. And so that makes, that makes a very sharp distinction, say something that is motion capture. Like you're aware that, you know, yes, there is still a person and breath under, like underneath all of that and that bringing that character to life, but to have it happen, you know, in the moment as it's happening, um, similar to how you engage with other people in a day-to-day. There's something very special in that, especially as we are grasping for ways to connect with each other through this medium. Brandon, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, from a choreography standpoint, but also this idea, uh, you know, of, of having people in the space together. Uh, what Espy was just talking about when it came to you know, the breath and that sense of presence and this need to connect. And I wonder if you could describe for people who haven't used a headset, but who know what it's like to be in a physical space with performers, how much, uh, how much of the fidelity is actually coming through these days? Yeah, I think, you know, in, in listening to both Dasha and, and SB there. And that question, you know, I was thinking like, well, in some ways it's very simple here, right? It's like, there's a reason live performance exists and we all know why, you know, we understand that there's this breath and this presence that we all experience together that's unlike anything else, right? And it's different from film. Uh, and that really does follow through into VR, even if um, you're wearing a headset. And that might be new to people until you really have the chance to do it. Of course, there are some limitations around um, facial expression, um, a little bit of body fidelity, but folks that are really well-trained in this understand ways to kind of bring their body to life. And that's what I'm really fascinated with and excited by uh, to imbue the life and presence into those avatars, whether they be Um, thinking about puppetry kind of with their body as we have talked about in some other sessions here or in just simple ways to use your breath and connect it to the way you move and to really just take your time and and move through a piece um, so that you can show hey I'm here with you Uh, and once you jump in and experience something like that you quickly think just forget that you're maybe alone in your bedroom 
um, as I did last night experiencing a VR piece. You know, I was like, oh, suddenly I'm in the Alps and that's just what's happening right now, you know? <laughs> yeah, I've been, as I'm listening to everyone and kind of coming back to this conversation, um, I, I realized like so much of the framing we've done as we've set up this entire series has it's been sort of with the thought that we were maybe trying to sell the idea of you want live performers to like be in your VR when there's the other side of it, which is to the folks who are doing live and have been doing live traditionally, maybe the part of the sales is like getting them to think about how this medium allows them to capture some of those quintessential elements of performance that you know, a flat, sta- you know, static image, one where the audience member doesn't have any control over it, doesn't really bring that energy through. Um, and and there's, while there's a lot of headsets out there, there's still a lot of people who haven't connected to this at all. Um, and who are, you know, looking at lists of games and like, well, do I, do I get one of these things and play a bunch of games when there's this other world existing of, of performance? Um, I don't know if that's been any of your experiences when it comes to folks from the theater world looking in at this space. You know, how, how are you, have you been introducing folks to the to the headsets? I know this is not. Yeah, I yeah. I, I think it's just a matter of accessibility right now. I think that's why, although Mozilla Hubs is difficult to use, it is one of the more accessible places that if you have just a laptop, you don't need a headset, you can still participate in a, in, in something that people are creating together or developing. But it's unfortunately the, that element of needing to buy gear and a headset is still a limitation for many people. Um, And I think also that a lot of non-theater, you know, people that are coming to VR from the gaming world or from different angles, their first live event like this is kind of like a VR chat where it's just people talking to each other and there are no real performers in there entertaining everyone else. So the concept of there may be a leap for the regular general public of buying a ticket to something because for them, their experience has been very colloquial and um, maybe even awkward. (laughs) in a alt space or VR chat, which um, uh, can can feel very intimidating for some. Um, and in general, I think it is a little intimidating for some because you are so seen in VR. You feel, you know, even though you have a headset on and you have an avatar, it's not your real face. For people that aren't used to do, doing immersive theater, um, it can be pretty jarring to have a performer go up to you and speak directly to you and ask you to do something. Um, so there are a couple a couple things to adjust to and to hurdles to leap over still in everyone kind of becoming intermeshed in this world. Yeah, there's well, there's a lot to unpack here between what you laid out, Noah, and, and what Dasha's is saying. So for starters, I would say that um, humans are fully dimensional beings, um, and so the best way we can express ourselves is in all our full dimensions, right? And so naturally that's going to be work better in physical space and how that translates into VR um, because we have that full um, ability to move around someone, to experience them in their totality, even if it's an avatar or a volumetric figure, whatever it is, right? It's That is more of a human form, at least to me, 
obviously I'm biased, I'm a choreographer here, than seeing someone, you know, in a 2D surface. So when it comes, though, to uh, bringing folks in, that's kind of core to what I do. I run a couple different programs um, where I do that. I'm associate producer at Musical Theater Factory, an artist service organization um, dedicated to new musicals that deconstruct oppressive ideologies. And we just started a program called MTFXR, um, which is all about merging the creative pipelines of musical theater and XR. Uh, and we do lots of different workshops and other ways to get people's hands on the technology and to understand what this language is like, because it is really new. Um, and I also am a part of the team at Fifth Wall Forum, um, who did a large event this year to bring together theater folks and technologists. Um, and I do a lot of what I call VR house calls, um, where I come with my headset and my computer and I come over to your house and walk a lot of theater people through their first time putting on a headset. Because I think a lot of folks from the technology side don't really think about how scary that first time can be. Um, and a lot of technical folks are also very well trained in video game um, language and video game, um, both language physically and uh, verbally. And like the idea of a button is not simple to a lot of people that study theater. Yeah. That's um, so true. Something, right, something that, something that, that seems maybe that obvious. Um, I put a controller in someone's hand and I'm like, okay, here's your, I say, here's your hands. Yeah. Um, we, we take, and, we take a lot of that uh, when you're a gamer, you take a lot of the abstraction for granted, right? I've been yeah. thinking about this a lot about sort of what the, the quality of immersiveness, you know, is a, a low, low amount of abstraction and a high degree of, of, um, you know, verisimilitude, um, and and there's there is there is a bit of an abstraction when you're a bit. There's a lot of abstraction when you have to like get into the headset, but so many of the experiences these days are chasing after something that's less abstracted and more immediate. Absolutely, and that's where even you know you could have a whole discussion about hand tracking, you know, versus buttons and how that might make people certain people feel better than others and what that means in terms of our you know interactive um, fidelity. For myself, it's been less about bringing people in for the for the play for the Black Imagination play that I directed with Crux. We, you know, we had actors and writers come into the space, and you know, you know, getting them into their body to see what is possible in the storytelling, stretch their imagination on that storytelling, and ways for them to really with each other. Um, especially since a lot of the thing in 2020 was, you know, in 2D form um, via like, but for me, most of the time in terms of bringing people actually been with communities in VR. Um, after, during, and then after the play in alt space, um, you know, reaching out to members in the alt space community to come and to watch the play or to see other plays, other conversations, to just get into the idea of, you know, what the storytelling looked like. Um, that for me has been more of the more of the work and it's something that I'm looking forward to do more of in this year. How have people been who are sort of, you know, 
super comfortable in alt space or VR chat. How have they been reacting to the live performance? I still have this desire to like make a flash mob uh, in <laughs> alt space or VR chat because I think that would be hilarious and confusing for everyone and then be like, this was a performance. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if a lot of them have seen that. I think that a lot of the social VR um, goers actually haven't. Oh, they're making it. They're making it on their own. That's actually what I'm I'm, I'm seeing. It's very yeah, interesting. Like theater people don't realize that like this stuff's happening. Um, and it's just, and people who are making it are not necessarily what the gatekeepers of theater might consider like to be theater people. And that's, I find really partially inspiring about all of this um, because like I found out about a Peter Pan production that was happening with like 25 people involved that had over 600 people try to try to show up um, in alt space, which is like remarkable. Um, and like, none of those people who were a part of that had any idea about like any of the events I've been running for like 18 months. Right. And it's like, how is that possible? We think our community is like so small, but like it's, it's so it's, it's out there. Um, which is pretty cool. And SP, I feel like you've also gotten to see a lot of people do stuff as well. Yeah. I've gone to a poetry comedy night, uh, rap battles, um, what was recent there was a true crime event as well so you know people are just you know we have all these different worlds that people build and sometimes people build worlds for specific stories but other times people build worlds and then people go there and say oh okay you know here's something to fill the space with sometimes it's done in a very formal way like setting up an event or sometimes it's very informal you know uh the uh, some some weeks ago, uh, there was a dwarven a cavern, so I took friends to go see it, and then we were all just playing around and pretending, you know, and making up roles for ourselves as we went along. And I it wasn't really a, a like a set story per se, but you know, we just were, you know, we were just playing, which is, you know, a very core part of theater. And I think in this pandemic, um, because people are trying to create or trying to survive, um, what does it mean to play? Like, that's something that is, you know, people crave that. So, you know, you go to these kind of spaces and things are more formal, things crash, uh, things uh, you have to reload. You know, there's so many technical problems. Uh, you have to reload spaces. Someone's sound gets very gargly but at the end of the day people are still just trying to sort it out rather than waiting on gatekeepers to bring theater into these spaces or bring event forms of engagement you know, coming together themselves and creating moments i think when you it's so key that when you strip it all down it does come back to just playing and, and people playing with each other. And yeah. and you're you're never gonna stop that from happening, which is great. Uh, I mean, some will try, but the, there's to know that 
that that spirit is animating so much of just like the day-to-day experience of folks in these virtual spaces. Um, you know, from that's the real seed from which the the theater of VR will grow. Right? Like it's yeah, it's definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and it's also wonderful that these platforms are already letting people, you know, really create things and you know, there are shows that have been made in, in VR chat that I've attended and the fact that these platforms are like, no, yes, use us for your explorations and experiments um, is really wonderful that those platforms aren't being so, um, I don't know, restrictive. Yeah, people are, people are creating the events that they want to see. Yeah. I, one thing that strikes me in terms of the way that the space has been covered for years is that it's always so much a tech story, and it's always us talking about, you know, how many headsets are being sold, how many concurrent users, et cetera, et cetera. Does it feel like to y'all that we're we're hitting that tipping point where this is a cultural story now? This is this is the, the way to cover this space is to be thinking about the kind of culture that's being created inside of the the frameworks that people are building. Yes, and and a global culture for uh, this space because anyone from around the world can link up to the same room. Um, I think that's part of the reason that the underpresents actually did a. It was a good choice to have the players not be able to speak, so they can gesticulate and get to know each other and make all these motions. But they don't. They don't have this barrier of language. And although we were acting in English. Um, we would still be able to, because they had kind of learned this physical language with themselves, between themselves, um, it was still possible to communicate with them, even though you could you could tell sometimes if a player couldn't quite understand everything you were saying. Um, and then knowing, seeing that and then taking that in and then adding more physicality to my performance. Um, but it is, the language barrier is, I mean, it's going to keep coming up because uh, this is a place where everyone can join together. So that's going to be an interesting challenge. I would just say that I love that framing, Noah. And I think that um, we have to remember, and I would urge other folks in the media to remember that, and the artists as well, that uh, VR, like, VR is just um, the tool, right? It's just the tool. And humans love to gather throughout our entire existence. And when we love to gather, we love to tell stories. Um, and we love to create things together and collaborate. That's just what we do. And so now we have another place virtually to do that. Um, but we're, what's happening is we're seeing people gather together and they're realizing, oh, we can start to build inside of these social platforms, you know? And then we can maybe build off of those social platforms as well. But it kind of comes down to that for desire to just make stuff together, which is um, really exciting and just makes it feel like this is just like the very beginning of the kind of next step in that cultural story. Agreed. Um, One of the things that I did recently was make a Clubhouse account. Don't laugh. But um, (laughs) in, in being able to talk with people about what I do, I noticed very quickly that I have to cut a lot of the jargon out of my mm-hmm. 
out of my words, but also not even just cut down the, the jargon, but also just realize that we spend so much time talking to each other about the thing that we do, and we don't we don't really talk about that. And then when we do, it's like in the language of people and field, and it's like okay, but what is it? You know, it's like okay, you're you know you're a VR director. What does that mean? What are you directing? What does a a play? Wow, okay. What does the play look like? Oh, you're directing a film or a documentary. How does that work? How do people engage with a story? How do characters work? How do you film? Like, you know, just the, you know, questions of curiosity that is, I've really made it a point to, like, really be clear about not just, like, okay, I work in this medium, but, you know, what is it that I do? You know, I can say to someone that I work in theater and it's like, oh, okay, what kind of theater? And I tell them very quickly, movement-based theater, experimental theater, sound-based theater, social justice-based theater, um, you know, the African diaspora, Black, Afrofuture. Like, I can name the that I'm engaged in. And then with VR, I realized that a lot of the what do you do, it get it turned into a very technical conversation, which isn't a bad thing, but again, it's like part of it. You know, all of those other things are important, but at the heart of it, what is it that you do and why why would I want to engage in this kind of content? Also, um, going into alt space and, you know, talking with people black imagination they should come and go see the play you know we're now at a place where i meet folks and you know they ask like what i'm up to or like what the next event is that they want to go and take you know check out whether it's like a talk or or another event that they want to see um and realizing that like you know yes we're are and yes it's exciting very novel thing but people still want to connect to stories and experiences and other people um, in moments. And so it's, for me, has shifted how I, you know, how I talk about what it is that I do. And even thinking, you know, deeply, like what kind of, what kind of work do I want to create? What kind of environments do I want to have? What kind of things do I want to engage in? What kind of things do I want to work with? All of these things have, have really shifted the more I've been able to talk to people outside of not only like VR industry, but also like theater, like outside of the technical industries when you just talk to and be an audience, what do you do? And, you know, people to, to be engaged or excited or curious about the story. And so how you talk about it changes. That's such an important point for everyone who makes or who kind of stays cloistered, um, you know, or becomes like a fan even of of this stuff is that it only lives and breathes if it's in conversation with the rest of the culture. It only matters if if it's shining um, you know, beyond the, the 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 walls we build for it. Um, and and it's it, that's definitely something that's been weighing on my thoughts. Um, Thank you all. This has been this has been excellent. Uh, I know we'll be checking in with all of you uh, over the course of the year. 
uh, as we, we kick off and start exploring and reaching out beyond, uh, beyond the, the little island we've built for ourselves. Um, so once again, um, th- thanks, and uh, we'll catch you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I am Stephanie Riggs, and I am here with Brendan Bradley. I'm Brendan Bradley. Hello, an actor and scrappy storyteller. Deirdre Lyons. Hi there. I'm Deirdre, a VR actor and a producer. And Tim Kashani. Hello, I'm Tim, and I'm Stephanie's friend. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> All right, guys, let's dive in to something that I, I think is going to be an interesting conversation because there are live aspects of XR theater that differentiate from other forms of XR. So other forms of XR, we're talking about games, we're talking about 360 video, um, pre-rendered recordings, but live Live XR theater. The two things that jump out to me as being the most obvious is you've got the acting is different um, and also the relationship with the audience. And I want to dive into both of those, but those kind of merge um, into how that affects narrative. So when you have something that's on rails or um, predetermined in the gaming style um, interactions, they handle stories slightly differently than we can or do in live XR theater. Um, so looking specifically at story, how does that liveness impact the development and the delivery of story? Deirdre, with your experience um, in Pandora X and uh, the Under Presents, The Tempest, any thoughts on, on narrative Yes, there is a there is an exchange in live performances that you don't get in in games or any other format. There is a a communication between you and another person, a connection. I find uh, a lot of times I will be acting with someone, and uh, spontaneously a hug will happen, even in VR, and we we can't really touch each other because of the way the avatars are, but we, we put our hands in that position and we give the intention of hugging and, and that happens in our heads. It sort of, it sort of has a place there that the memory helps to make the interaction and the action. It, it feel like it's actually happening. And then these connections between you and the other person, the subtleties between how they how they are feeling, how, what their body language is telling you, even through an avatar, or the fact that they're they're wearing a mask can allow them to be a little bit more free and open and relaxed uh, than they would be necessarily in real life, uh, or more vulnerable. Uh, it's it's quite a quite a beautiful thing to be acting in VR and uh, performing for an audience and with an audience because it is an exchange. Even if you were in a proscenium theater, there is that exchange of energy between the audience, you know, when they breathe or they laugh or they clap, there's a spontaneity there that we as actors hunger for and we can find it when we are in the space together. 
The the narrative also has to allow space for that, right? If you think about traditional theatrical narratives or gaming where it's all pre-scripted and it's very linear and progressive, um, do you find that it is difficult to have that space and still carry a story? Does that live element present a challenge in the narrative? It depends on how the narrative is constructed. I mean, certainly you've got... You've got this this staging where it's proscenium and they're staging it down, but even then there's 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 moments of spontaneous laughter and clapping and and then also with the stories that I've been involved in, there's there's a role for the audience written in and we we allow for that to happen, to to take advantage of the fact that we are in in a world that feels more uh, surreal or different than the world that we that we normally inhabit. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, VR acting or acting. I love that term. It, it's it's different in so many ways. I mean, you're talking about like that human connection, but there are significant limitations in like facial expression and physical expression. Brendan, have you found that? that that inhibits or enhances the audience experience? Um, I think that it's both and neither. That's a nonsense answer and you're welcome. Um, But I, I think that, first of all, I think art has always been a dialogue between the artist and the audience. And now that dialogue is just more dynamic. And in some ways that, gives us new territory to what you're describing of like, you can go with nonlinear narrative or you get much more engagement interactivity. But even if you just saw Chekhov in VR, the rules are different now. Like at any moment, if I saw Chekhov in a theater, there's no threat that someone's going to like kick me out of that theater, right? Like, but anything is possible in this moment and therefore the rules have changed. And so being a performer, first you're defaulting almost back to classic techniques of like mask work and puppetry which it can be very expressive and very compelling and very emotional but then you're also transitioning into this like actor guide role where the audience is really looking to you not only for the rules of the um fictional universe but also the rules of the experience um and it allows this kind of hyper engagement that I think for a performer can be really thrilling, but it can also be really fatiguing because you're now kind of responsible not only for the story and the character's journey, but the audience's journey, um, literally. Yeah. There are so many different ways to connect, like you're saying, with either with physical movement, masks. Um, but what do you think is what do you think people really connect with on the live side? I mean, gaming, people get involved. They, you know, it's very, it can be very social. Um, certainly my son loves to play with his friends and it gets heated and it's, and that's their version of live, but live narrative is, is different. Tim, like how, how do we, how do we connect with an audience differently with a live performance other than gaming? It all circles around, the theme of your story, which should remain the same no matter what medium that you're working in. And as you move into this XR and live space, there is something tangible about that experience that we are all craving. And 
when the pandemic hit and theater was shut down, we immediately started working with different regionals through our nonprofit to look at how do we keep live alive. And I realized quickly that we don't have to, like people still want it. So now what we want to do is see what kind of community can we continue to build during this time so that when we come to the another end of it, that we have something to, to go to. And I'll, I'll give a story that explains it in my view for me to understand perfectly. And it starts off with what Deirdre was saying. She worked in a show with my wife, Pamela, in Finding Pandora X. And Pamela's a Broadway actress who's been doing this many, many years in the traditional form. And she was self-admittedly not a technologist. When the first Oculus DK came out and my son and I were geeking out and playing with it, she just looked at that thing and said, that thing is heavy, huge. Why would anybody want to do it? <laughs> and like many actors, when the live world shut down, she was struggling with how do I continue my artistic soul? And when this opportunity came out, there were two things that were done incredibly well. First of all, starting with the story and as Dreeter pointed out, realizing that the way of telling this story is going to be non-Persinium based, but they still wanted some Persinium based moments where the characters were taking large story points and sharing them. How do you keep focus on the actors? But the more important thing to me was to watch my wife go through the other thing they did incredibly well, which is to create a backstage environment that felt comfortable for the actors to be safe to explore their character choices, meaning you've got a stage manner. Only the stage manager this time is using Discord instead of being in the theater, pointing at you and telling you how much time you have. And building that infrastructure and process that allows this creative dialogue that is native to this form that we're talking with, allows the actor to fall deeper into their character so that when these moments that are being pointed out by both Brendan and Deidre, you have to interact with the audience, you're actually interacting as the character and it becomes second nature when you wrap that artist in a boundary that allows them to do what they love. You bring up a really good point about backstage. And I often hear theater professionals talking about the backstage choreography, whether it's, you know, trying to do a quick change in 10 seconds or get from one side of the stage to the other backstage um, is as important as the onstage uh, choreography. What backstage do you guys do to keep uh, engaged and keep the show going forward? I hear you use Discord in order to communicate. Are there other aspects backstage that contribute to the live the, the live performance? Sure. I mean, I can volunteer our scrappy duct tape workflow. Um, we started hosting performances inside of Mozilla Hubs, um, and we which is a kind of browser-based uh, experience that then allowed our audience from anywhere to access it. And we would log on with the team all in laptops and connect our audio that way. And it kind of maintained, I think Tim um, was talking about this earlier in, in our chat 
um, the idea that if we ever lost connection, we were at least still tethered in one way. And I think it's figuring out whether that's a discord or whether that's um, logging in on a laptop or secondary device, whatever it is, figuring out a place that is your tether to your backstage whenever something goes wrong, that everybody knows this is how I get back in, um, allowed them freedom to really push the boundaries on our avatar performance inside the experience or when we were doing uh, 2D live video compositing inside um, because we could really just kind of do anything, try anything, go crazy as long as we always knew in some ways we had that safety net of our backstage. Well, some of the backstage things that, you know, you don't think about in this, in this line of work is, is um, the backstage of real life. So uh, most of the, most of the backstage is sort of technologically based in the world. So you're, you're getting your headset making sure the sound's good. But then you also, when you're in real life, you want to make sure you've muted your phone and hopefully nobody will knock on the door and you try to get your cats fed so they don't become a part of the show. So there's a lot of different things that lend themselves to the backstage of, of a of a virtual reality show. But yeah, we tended it to, to gather as actors before the show while the audience was coming into their space. And we would, we would, we would share our, how, how we are, how the week was, any technical issues we were having. Do you hear so-and-so on discord? Cause we would have like one ear in an ear, um, a headset earpiece on discord. And then, you know, the other ear was for the, you know, the headset so we can hear in world. So you're a little split in your focus of dealing with somebody saying, okay, hurry up now in one ear and you talking to the, to, to the audience in show in, in hmm. the other. Yeah. And we've heard some great stories about just the magic of live theater and overcoming when things go wrong and how that is so much a part of it being a visceral experience to an audience, but in the actual production itself, when you're interacting with the audience, that relationship changes. And Tim, have what have you seen in how an audience relates to the story or to the characters that changes that strikes you the most? Well, first of all, our cat did make an appearance in the backstage of life a few times, singing along, by the way, we have a very loud cat. But to answer, answer your question, there there are many different ways to analyze personality types, whether it be Myers-Briggs or 16 personalities or any of those different pieces. And one of the mistakes sometimes I tell people is they assume that when people come to an XR experience, that there are all these massively extroverts who want to engage in every aspect that you think they should engage in. And you need to understand that people still bring themselves into this virtual world as they would into the real life world. And there are plenty of people that have come to be more passive and soak in the nature of that experience. Therefore, I always suggest that you test the boundaries a little bit before you assume that you can just yank somebody up onto this virtual stage to toss the ball with you. And We've been exploring it more of the proscenium-based approaches as well to see how we can put some of those safeguards in for people that may not feel comfortable with technology or simply don't want to interact. 
Yeah, talking about things that are assumed, do you guys find that audience ever assume that something is pre-recorded, like the gaming or the 360 video? And is that something that you work into the production, is helping them learn that they can interact with you? Yes, so, so, so much. I, I'm i a perfectionist by nature, and so the first three or four months of the quarantine, as I was pivoting into uh, performing live from my apartment in these different mediums. I was trying so hard to like keep the plates spinning and show like a polished production that people didn't know it was live. And it, in some ways I didn't get my cred because they just thought like, oh yeah, you edited that or you fixed that in post <laughs> or whatever. And I was like, no, it was live. And they're like, really? And so I actually started purposely, this sounds so dumb, but I did a, a, a live 2D per, uh, experience um for the Museum of Boston. And I built bad cues into my show that I knew would misfire so (laughs) that I could have the show, like in some ways giving my, comedians talk about this sometimes, like putting a joke that they know will bomb so they can win the audience back as like a challenge to themselves. And similarly, I felt like I was basically trying to sabotage my own show to prove it was live. And what's weird is it worked. Like the audience then starts to feel invested in whether you're going to get through it. And it immediately means that you're communing together, like you're participating in this experience together, um, which in some ways I think is the kind of secret sauce about being synchronous with your audience. Yes, there it is again, engagement and connection and the that only a live performance can bring is that that moment. I think that's brilliant. Okay, so if you guys were to pick, I'm going to put you on the spot here. If you were to pick one trait or aspect of XR live performance that is the most important distinguishing factor from gaming or 360 video or other non-live pre-rendered experience, what would that one trait be? Tim, do you have a thought? Magic. I don't know. (laughs) Well, I mean, like, is it, is it like, is it the story, the way that the story evolves? Is it that relationship with the audience is really the key difference? Is it um, how the actors perform? Is there one thing that stands out or is it, or is it really a balance of all of that? It really is E all of the above. That's when you, when you say, what is the one, one thing there, there really isn't. It's, saying why do we why do we love going to a broadway show there's so many things that are wrapped up into it and so much of that is the same in a live xr show i i know when my wife finished her first show she was very emotional and she said i just gave somebody a virtual hug and she says no no offense against you because we've been locked down together for a while she said it was nice to actually interact with somebody else and it was a close friend of ours and that's you don't get that in a game and you don't get that in watching a film i didn't think that there was one i just didn't know (laughs) or i would love to be enlightened if there is one that somebody has found and said this is the quintessential brendan has that one (laughs) secret answer that's going to save us all i i have a i have a bad version of it um i think i i think it's tension I think 
we inherently, as producers, we want to save the audience from any discomfort. But that is what makes the most compelling experiences is, you know, whether it's titillation, whether it's nerves, whether it's anxiety, like in some ways, all other forms of media are passive in the sense that even if you're interacting, even if you're engaging, you can pause, you can start over. Like a video game, the stakes couldn't be higher. You can die, but then you can start over. And I think that the one thing about live entertainment is there isn't a pause. There isn't a do-over. There isn't a stop. And for me as an actor, what has been literally the saving grace to my soul is that for all the pre-recorded nonsense and headset stuff that I do and editing that I do, knowing when I do like full run-throughs of my shows again and again and again, and it's not until I know there's someone on the other side of that lens or I see other avatars around me, I know there's no take backsies on this one. I can't stop. We're on the train. And that tension to me is what defines live entertainment. And it's, it's, it's a drug. I'm addicted to it. I'm, I'm obsessed with it. I'm always seeking it out. Um, and it's the reason why I've personally fought so hard to keep it alive in these last nine months. It's beautiful. Well, thank you all, Brendan, Deirdre, and Tim. Thank you for joining us. If you could name, as we close out of here, your favorite live moment in an XR performance in just one or two sentences, just that moment that captured your heart, that filled you with joy, that made you feel connected the way that live performance can't do, or the other mediums can't do, that live performance can do. What was your one favorite moment? Brendan? Oh, no. Um, You're up first. I'm going to say Circle Jerk, um, which was really just a hyper video multimedia fanfare. It was crazy, but they did a cool thing with intermissions where one of the actors, they took two intermissions, and during the intermission, one of the actors would deadlock with the camera and stare at the camera for the full five minute intermission and do just very odd, compelling human things. And staring at a human in deadlock for five minutes live was incredibly uncomfortable and incredibly sexy. That's awesome. Dear, did you have a moment that really stands out to you? There's uh, such a beauty uh, and generosity of spirit in that under presents the the players and the 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 people who come to that world and live in that world are are just beautiful human beings and there are so many moments in there but I will I will isolate one where I will walk on stage uh, they have a, a virtual stage there and I will be pelted with roses from the audience they're so happy to see me and it is it is such a, a joy to be uh, interacting and uh, immersed with those people. And th that's an audience that we come back to again and again and again, and the stories that keep growing. And I think there's a beauty of a feeling seen in VR in a safe place and spontaneity that creates magic in the world. Thank you. Tim, close us out with your favorite moment live XR theater. My favorite moment is still to come. But I have had some amazing moments. And 
I'll go back to the launch of Altspace VR. We were one of the early people involved in investing in that company. And it was standing there, not wearing a headset and watching people put on a headset for the first time and explore this community where they were playing and sharing and to see this unbridled joy and laughter of these folks going through experiences that I didn't really know what they were going through, but they were going through something in an authentically human way, and they couldn't hide it from me because they had the goggles on. Thank you all for these beautiful stories, and thank you for your dedication, your tenacity, your passion, your talent in helping this industry grow and thrive. You're all incredible. I'm so proud to be a part of it with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hello, it's Catherine Yu, executive editor of No Persinium, and we're talking some more VR and theater, but specifically about racting today. And we've got a wonderful panel of guests who are... Hi, I'm Beth Cates. I'm the creative director of Playground Studios, and I'm an XR theater designer and maker. I'm Marinda Bueta. I'm an actress, voice artist, and puppeteer based in South Africa, currently working in a live VR theater show called Alien Rescue. I'm Ari Tarr. I'm lead VR acting host and VR acting consultant for a company called Adventure Lab, as well as an XR content producer and founder. So let's take all of these different kinds of VR experiences that are out there. You've got your Half-Life Alex's and your Asgard's Wraths, Wraith's Wraths. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of games out there for the VR market. But what we're talking about specifically, this unique niche is live performance. So how does the live aspect really differentiate XR theater from other forms of um, virtual, augmented, and mixed reality? and how is VR acting, aka racting, kind of in dialogue with the way that like film or or kind of quote unquote normal theater works? I just love that you use the word racting. I... Me too. <laughs> who wants to well, who wants to explain what what, what is racting? Where did it come from? Gary. Uh, well, the the use of of the word comes from a sci fi novel uh, by Neil Stevenson called The Diamond Age which along with a lot of other sort of future dystopian extensions of where technology will be, the idea is that immersive theater becomes the most popular entertainment form in the future where actors are paid to join uh, uh, audience members in a multiplayer VR simulation. So do you all consider yourselves rector? And what, from your perspective, what, what's it like to be a rector and how does that live quality um, change things when we're talking about VR? So I'll jump in. Um, live acting in VR uh, differs from traditional forms of acting where um, your feedback from your customer, if I can call it that, is immediate. Your customer satisfaction is immediately palatable. Um, you can draw a parallel to stand up comedy. If you're not funny, no one laughs. If your storytelling is poor or confusing, your live audience members will let you know, either verbally or by the actions they take uh, or via inaction, by not doing what you want them to do. 
So you can gauge whether you are successful in your storytelling ability by the information that the audience is giving you in real time. Um, it's also so unpredictable. Uh, live VR shows may allow for unexpected branching narratives, which you as an actor, they need to accept and ve uh, weave into the story uh, you ideally want to tell and just make it work. So somehow you still need to bring the story to the conclusion or to one of the series of conclusions you wanted while respecting the unexpected choices of the player. So what are some moments where, um, you know, the audience member did something that was surprising, but it actually ended up helping to improve the experience? Well, I can uh, answer specifically for Alien Rescue. Uh, we had one, uh, we call them heroes, who did the show, and they weren't actually interested in the story so much as trying to win, um, as in they wanted to, to solve the mystery of, of our plot. And they were going off on their own and lifting up all the objects in the space. And, and the actors were all standing around in character and going, uh, dude, come back, uh, <laughs> come and talk to us. And he was just running off. <laughs> and he actually managed to, to break, um, to, to catapult himself outside of the set in a way. And luckily, we've got developers on hand who they are there uh, working with us in real time, if there's a problem, like there was a problem in that instance, and they just, I don't know what they did, but they made a little box over his avatar <laughs> and they pushed him back into the scene. <laughs> and we're like, there, start acting again. Um, so so th with that experience, we learned that there's still some, some um, issues, technical issues and, and sort of loopholes that people can, um, can take advantage of. So that was quite a, a learning curve. And also to learn that... We need to respect and adapt to the type of audience that's currently in VR, which is more the gamer community. Uh, for me, it was a, a big learning curve coming from a theater background. Um, I'm not a gamer, really. I'm into narrative and storytelling, whatever form that takes. So just to learn how that other type of, of person's head works is, is, is really um, interesting and a learning curve. We had a really interesting um, moment in finding Pandora X that um, we were looking for ways to make a very particular interaction between two characters resonate in a stronger way with the audience and using, so we're, the, the show is performed in VR chat and where you can generate emojis. And that wasn't something that we had taught any of the audience members how to do some people knew because they had been in vr chat somewhere exploring their what their avatars were able to do um but what we offered to the to the audience was this moment where they could actually help this interaction between these two characters it was quite it could be quite emotional by by um triggering their heart emojis and <clears throat> we we guided this the first time it happened and then incredibly the second performance where this was included into what we were doing in the performance um it happened naturally 
And so it was this beautiful indication of, of opening up these little moments where that, that liveness is really apparent and where the audience, um, the audience interaction feeds what the actors are able to do because then they took those hearts and, and it elevated their performance uh, in a really beautiful way. Um, you know, there are then a hundred other stories about like people flying off and other actors having to go gather the people that had flown off in the wrong direction because they shouldn't have been able to fly yet. And all of that fun stuff that then, that then like creates those great little improvisation moments. But that heart moment was so interesting because it was the kind of thing that could only happen in VR too. And it really opened and elevated those, that moment of, of theater. Has that been your experience as well, Ari? Are people trying to break things, run off? I know that uh, your, your experience has maybe um, some structure where uh, Adventure Lab is kind of letting you play uh, before and after the actual show? Yeah. Um, it's different. A lot of times, you know, we'll get developers or gamers who want to want to explore, but then we'll get some really empathic players, which has been really, really interesting because I don't want to give away any spoilers here, so I'm going to try to be careful. But um, there, we've sort of set up a traditional supervillain narrative, and I'm having a really great time uh, you know, playing a, a role of the, the bad guy that you, you love to hate. And we've sort of set up everything in the experience to you're sort of supposed to unite with your fellow players against the bad guy, but occasionally we'll get people who really delve into the backstory of the bad guy and start really getting empathic with him. And we build a really authentic relationship over the, over the time of the experience where there's some people that are like saying, you know what, actually, let's take over the world with you. This sounds like a, we don't want to, we don't want to <laughs> accomplish our mission. We, we actually like you a lot, which has been really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of unexpected. So, uh, but we, we give people that option anywhere they want to go. We, we will follow them. So I guess it's, it's interesting. Um, where do you, where do you tread that line? Like you're on that knife's edge of leaning into the emergent behavior, but also, you know, you, you got a show to run. Well, that's where having years of immersive theater experience comes into play because you need to, you, you can't lose control of your audience and an experienced immersive actor, um, will not necessarily know how to walk that line correctly and give it a, an emotionally satisfying answer while still subtly looping back your players to the main storyline. Um, and uh, you, you do, there are uh, methods of establishing control and authority in IRL uh, immersive theater that becomes absolutely essential to the, these kinds of experiences. The other thing I often wonder about is, um... Do, do they assume you're like AIs, robots? Do people oh, yeah. just kind of miss the, oh, really? So what happens when they figure out that you're real? Uh, we, <laughs> uh, one of our developers, uh, Raphael, posted a, a GIF on Twitter of uh, Joaquin Phoenix reacting from that alien movie where it's like, oh my God. Where? So they're not totally terrified, but there is always a, a moment um, an audio gif what was, I, what was i thinking no there, there is a moment where uh right off the bat where they're where they're they are checking in and it is absolutely essential to start off the rapport to uh establish with them no i am a real person and 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 kind of use emotional jujitsu jiu to flip that back on them and let that be sort of the first budding of the relationship 
that you're having to make sure that it really is something emotionally resonant that an AI could never reproduce that is custom tailored to that particular audience member and also keep and checks back to that first moment through the entire experience. We do the exact same thing in, in Alien Rescue. They're also always taken aback in, in the first scene um, I play an um, artificial intelligence. Um, so I start off with a sort of uh, uh, way of, of saying my lines that it can sound like it's just a computer. And then I start really asking them questions and interacting with them. And, and I, usually they, I could hear that slightly taken off guard, uh, aback. It's like, oh, it's a real human. It's like, yes. And we actually use that um, opportunity. We ask them questions uh, about to try and define what is their playing style. Are they a more timid player or are they a bit more aggressive? So we use those first initial questions to, to just try and establish what type of person they are. And all the rest of the cars listen to that and they are informed by that because it just gives them a chance to then slightly predict what we think they might do in, in other situations in the show. Yeah, um, Beth specifically, like I know for Finding Pandora X, um, you know, all the all of the actors, they were playing gods and goddesses. Um, Rinda, like in your show, they're aliens and robots. Mm -hmm. um, are your, you know, you're an evil genius and the players are bunnies and, and puppies. So how does it how does it feel to just not be human and to look down and be like, oh, right, I am currently 12 feet tall and all the players are ants. <laughs> Well, a lot of those skills are the same, again, as IRL immersive theater, where you're, you are communicating to your audience members that they have permission to play in this world. And very, you, know, you can't force somebody to play. You have to mm -hmm. lay out specific clues and prompts that sort of give them comfort and permission to step into their roles and inhabit them. And, and some players do uh, more than others. You definitely need to respect the the player. You read them, uh, you know, the subtle cues they will give you, and then you re respect them. If they're not someone who wants to really engage and they just want a, a very, if I can call it, vanilla uh, storyline, then you give it to them. It's about their enjoyment of the show, after all. And I think there's um, not being a performer, but having been an audience and all of these pieces and, and having worked on, on Pandora, Finding Pandora X, um, that that moment, um, you know, after you've done all the onboarding and all of that sort of real Cartesian kind of stuff, and it's usually done in a really empathetic way. And um, but the the invitation to the audience and and with Pandora, how critical that is, the first moments that the audience is spending is exactly when when you do see when you learn sort of what the tone of that audience is and are they real chatty and really into exploring um or is it going to take more work and i've watched deirdre lyons plays um uh, the guide through the piece and uh and i've watched her in vr <laughs> but i've watched her shift and morph to um, to who is in the room with her and what it's going to take for her to get them from point A to point B to point C where they finally meet the gods and how she primes the audience for a lot of that really, um, really powerful interaction um, and, and finds the people who like maybe they just want to lie on the floor and not 
communicate and that's and that's okay too so that those permissions are are really uh important uh and really interesting to watch how they impact the the performance um having seen similar things in the tempest right where i've been in the audience with the, the under presents the tempest and i've watched there being other audience members who have clearly done it 5000 times and watch the performer adapt to them and kind of go oh okay oh you know how to do that this is amazing and it and it shifts the storyline a bit or shifts the mood of the performance um which becomes a, a really beautiful thing to watch i like what you said about priming there especially because adventure lab is we're actually taking an audio content and we're asking people to to speak to us and give us information there's kind of a double uh double thought path pathway that's happening where at the same time you're talking to people you are in the back of your mind going okay i'm storing that for later this will help me set up the scene that's going to occur in five minutes and i can bring back that information and customize it so kind of on two levels mm. at the same time mm. definitely those those improv skills um come in handy um your question about how is reacting in, di in dialogue with theater and film acting um, for me acting in vr is similar to theater acting in the round where the audience is uh, placed in a circular shape around the stage um, and in that type of performance space you are aware that the audience can see you from any angle and whereby in tra traditional cinema or TV production, obviously the camera lens becomes the eye of the audience. And the camera determines the angle or side you are playing towards, um, the side which the audience will see. So for me, you draw on all your skills that you use in traditional forms of acting. Um, but now the fourth wall in cinema is gone and the proscenium in theater is removed. Mm -hmm. And your audience can interact with you and view you from any angle which is both challenging and exciting. I think that that's what, um, what uh, Ari and Beth are, are both um, describing. Just It's so unpredictable and um, you just deal with it and you make the experience, you know, the show goes on. And that's such an interesting thing, working on a piece right now that'll go up, there'll be one night of it only at the end of December. Um, I'm working with a new, an actor who is new to VR. And we're, I'm actually crafting the space so that it won't be in the round so that the audience oh. can get behind her so that we're, we're going to keep it to like a, a three quarter, but I have warned her like, the audience can move around in a way that you've never experienced before. But I actually don't, I don't want her to get nauseous mm. having, having to mm. turn around in all the directions just because she's, she's new to it. And so we're actually going to, we're going to craft the performance so that it's a little bit easier on, on her, um, but acknowledge that people are going to want to move around. So we're going to give them three quarters, but, and it really, really, really is just to get, um, the performer used to this new format of performance because it is very much like performing in the round, but like the spherical round, because what happens when your audience flies up above you and or is on stage with you. Yeah. Uh, but that's wanna... so lovely. Of So sorry, Ari, continue. Oh, it sounded like you, you were going to finish that off. No, I just thought uh, it's so lovely, Beth, that you are, are considering your actor like the, the, the slightly less experienced actor. That is a, a great solution just to, to um, at least um, create some sort of proscenium or, uh, you know, just give a, 
one angle that she knows she doesn't need to play towards. That's really going to consider it, I think. I just wanted to quickly talk about that dialogue with film. One of the things that got said early on by folks like uh, you know, Chris Milk and others of, of adapting film to VR was the example of when uh, cinema was first introduced and that people were putting plays on film because the, the language of mm -hmm. cinematography hadn't been created yet. And so that the you know cinematography doesn't necessarily work in, in VR. You can't do a hard cut. You kind of have to coerce and, and seduce an audience into giving you, directing their attention where you want them to go. But I wanted to kind of flip that actually on its head because I remember watching the, the master comedian performer Dario Fo say that every human being has a camera inside their head and that the way that the performer moves and behaves can actually direct their the attention of that camera directing the cinematography but i but i think he, he's using a modern metaphor for something which is much more ancient which is you can actually direct attention more like a you know like a magician's sleight of hand you're you're in charge of directing the audience's attention basically everyone who's in the experience their head is the camera and the the performer is a cinematographer in collaboration with those audience members hope that makes sense yeah mm -hmm. absolutely it's a dialogue a dialogue that happens between the audience and the performer and i think in any kind of uh, live performance that there's that that dialogue for sure um but definitely i think light is is um so important and um light and motion i think are the two strongest um indicators you can use to draw your audience's attention um, if i think of traditional theater that's definitely um any kind of motion across the floor and also the use of lighting can, can really direct an audience so i'm really excited about how uh, production design and all the skills that, that beth is a ma master of um are really going to be used to to its fullest potential and show us new developments um, for how to control, if I can call it that, your audience attention because they can go anywhere and do anything. You know, it's, it's, I think that's the new challenge for creators in VR. And this becomes really interesting to where um, thinking about it scenographically, <clears throat> um, the, the collaboration is now uh, paramount um, between the writers and the sonographers and the developers and the performers um, in a way that <clears throat> in a way that um, we we sort of understand from immersive theater, but I, I think there's something heightened here in this virtual space around that because it is so powerful, shifting the light, shifting a a, a set piece or a mountain or dropping the, you know, changing the skybox or dropping the ground away. All of these things um, really, really powerfully direct attention. And when done <clears throat> in concert with the performer who is knowledgeable in that way um, is extraordinary. And, and, uh, but, but we're also now thinking in this 360 
plus degree, fourth dimension kind of way, which makes it really challenging then to to craft and direct a piece. Like you you need all the you need other eyeballs in other places too to try to understand what the relationships mean between the scenography and the performer and the sound. And um it becomes like we're gonna we're gonna need more directors, um, which is like that could be a disaster. But um but it also is really <laughs> it also means it's really it's really important to for to get everybody's um to gather the knowledge from everybody who's within it so those who are watching those who are performing and what it feels like do you feel like the mountain is moving too fast for you to be able to perform to it kind of thing um there so so this there's new dialogues happening. There's new vocabularies, um, in much in the way like like Ari, like you were talking about, like when films started, the the words weren't there, the because they didn't we didn't know yet, and this is sort of where we're sitting now. And every time we do even a performance of the same show, there's more learned um, about what that vocabulary is and what that those dialogues are. Um, and there's a lot to learn from film and immersive and back in the cave with the fire and all of these pieces. Yeah, that's what, it's such an exciting time to become involved in, in uh, VR live, VR experiences. Um, for people who are listening and who are not involved yet, but who's keen, um, I can definitely say it's it's the best time. Just start. Contact some people. Reach out. We're really at that stage where you can contact anyone um, and just try your hand at it. Build something tiny. It doesn't have to be great. Just start somewhere um, because it's really a, an exciting time to become involved. Please reach out to us if you have questions. I, I did a Adventure Lab won a couple of awards at the Raindance Film Festival, and I did a really uh, wonderful talk uh, and had a lot of interested folks in VR chat asking how to how to break into the industry, quote unquote. And I mean. I wasn't able to give a satisfying answer because we need we need more of an industry. We need more people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We need <laughs> to, to sort of spread the word. We and, need you. Um, yeah, we do need you. So please, please join up. Yeah, I think we're all pretty open to being reached out to for sure. Absolutely. Uh, one one thing um, I want to highlight, and I'd love to hear your opinion, uh, maybe Ari. Um, for me, your approach to the script. As an actor, how you do your character preparation, for me, that stays the same as it is in traditional um, mm. mediums. Um, for me, it's the exact same process. Um, I'll shortly say what it is. I would read the full script several times, and then I'll look at what's my character o- character's overall need and motivation in the show, and then I break it down scene for scene, what's my character's motivation in each scene, what's my character saying and not saying, what's he doing, what does that mean? And then you internalize all of that um, and then you work with your director to to display all of that information in a way that fits the director's vision and your interpretation of the project. Um, that's how I find it. I think it's the exact same process, but maybe you differ. How do you find it, Ari? Well, I do think that when you're going into um, a scene, yes, there there should be a lot of background work, you know, with... Um, typical Meisner theater, you do all of your, your sense memory and your background on your character, even if that never shows mm-hmm. up in the script, but that it, 
you may have an audience member who really does start asking you about your past and asking very specific questions. And so, yeah, you better have that history there just in case, mm -hmm. because it, it's very likely to come up. But I do find that I will customize that character and I will find a different part of that character specifically for that audience member. So everyone gets a different version of uh, Dr. Crumb, the, the character from, from that experience. <laughs> now, I, but I wanted to send a question over to, to uh, Beth because something came up during the Fifth Wall Forum that I thought was really interesting where we talked about the sort of the, the finances for paying a, a staff for how many people can operate this experience. And when, I've been, when I used to do devised uh, site-specific theater with projection mapping, it's a, there's a dialogue between the actor and the, and the technical director and the stage manager for how do you keep um, the experience organic. And that's something you were saying earlier, Miranda, about the rhythm of the performance and how the the technical aspects will be in in concert. It's a, it's a dialogue between all of these people, and that now that we have access to all of this amazing AAA gaming technology, I as an actor have options in my tool set where I can drastically change the world and change all of the technical aspects in this beautiful way. And I wanted to hear you talk a little more, Beth, about. Um, what that means in the, and that redefinition of that dialogue between all of those technical aspects and an actor and sort of that organic rhythm? It's a great question. Um, it means that the, the, um, the developer and the designer uh, have a critical role there to negotiate that with the with the performer to figure out um, to what needs to be kept live in in a performance and and technologically what needs to happen in order to make sure that that's stable um, so that the that the experience isn't damaged because so many of these these interactive pieces can can damage the world and break the world um, so those relationships that that conversation conversation between the performer, the designer, and the developer becomes a really, really important one. Um, and one that's really, that is a circular relationship because then the developer comes up with these incredible things that they can do. And then the designer asks, well, can it do this? And then they, right. And it just keeps going and going and going. Um, and it's, it's so, so it, it's similar in some ways to what we've experienced in theater, but it's so much bigger now um because it encompasses worlds and time and space um and um and but yes to keep it organic is the one thing too that i think we're all uh working towards and a lot of these platforms don't allow us some of that organic quality because they are crafted for those social interactions that are not necessarily theatrical. Um, and so we're doing a lot of hacking and end runs and uh, playing Bravo. with what's there, right? You know, we'll use what's there. We've got an egg and a spoon and a chair. We'll make some theater and here we go. Um, it will, might not be pretty at points, but, uh, but we can do it. Um, here, so finding, yeah. Yeah. So the, Unfortunately, um, our time together has come to an end. This breaks my heart because I would love to keep talking with all of you all day. But uh, I believe it is it is nearing the witching hour for poor Marinda because uh, Marinda's <laughs> in South Africa, whereas it is daytime uh, over here in California and Calgary. But once again, amazing conversation. I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but we're we're really blessed with um, folks like you who are pushing boundaries and you know breaking through 
this weird new frontier of uh, VR and theater. So thank you so much, Ari, Beth, and Marinda. It has been a pleasure and an honor. Once again, I want to thank Stephanie and Catherine and all of our guests for uh, going through this entire process. We had uh, we actually had four recording sessions over the course of this. Uh, my segment, we kept on having uh, technical issues, and so we had to literally come back. So the one you heard today was like done in a different recording. It's also why some of the levels sounded different. Um, in case you've been like binging these, which means that you did like five hours in a row. Wow. That's just, that's wild. Uh, I couldn't do that. Um, all right. Uh, well, welcome to the end of the show. Uh, I've been holding off on, on what the end of the show normally is like, just because of, uh, kind of because of that, because people might, you know, run through all of these in, in a big bunch, but, uh, this is a section home to what's normally known as like a Noah rant or just, I'm talking about whatever the thing of the day is. I, I don't really have much for you at the moment. Uh, mostly because <laughs> I've been dealing with like, house issues and technical problems last night um one of my hdmi cables just died and for about 30 minutes i thought that my monitor had died which was great i was i was really excited because we have the sundance right now and um the whole reason why i got the computer that i got back in november was for this moment knowing that there'd be vr experiences uh at sundance new frontier that i would only be able to experience if i had a rig and so uh, you know uh, took took the the loan money that's keeping me alive and invested in the rig so that I'd be able to cover the VR so that we could maybe get more Patreon backers. I don't know. Um, sometimes my life is a drill tweet. Uh, turns out I should have just been holding Dogecoin this entire time. Um, I wasn't joking when I said if like people like made a bunch of money on GameStop to just like give it to us. What it's, it's not real. Just, you know, help us please if you're if you've got if you've like ripped off a hedge fund this week uh spread the love uh we don't need much to be sustainable and who knows maybe you're a multimillionaire now uh obviously you worked hard and, and not being sarcastic here to get the money to play at that level because uh you need you need money to make money and uh well <laughs> i don't have any uh so uh, although, you know, did to get the rig to get the thing and then the HDMI cable dies and, you know, you freak out. Anyway, cannibalized another HDMI cable, got the computer up and running, and we'll be kicking around the Sundance Film Festival all weekend long, uh, checking out all the stuff. I'm very excited. Um, oddly enough, some of the stuff I'm most excited about is not VR. <laughs> Um, I'm very excited for uh, Seven Sounds, which is an audio-based piece that documentarian Sam Green, uh, who made the Weather Underground documentary, which is one of my favorite documentaries from from about, oh God, 15, 16 years ago now, uh, maybe a little longer. Uh, and um, Jessica Brillhart is actually a producer uh, or, or a creative on that piece as well. It's an audio-based piece. Uh, can't rattle off everything about it, but I'm very, very excited about immersive audio. You know that. Uh, speaking of which, next week's episode is going to be with uh, the creative forces behind Darkfield Radio, which I am so stoked. Again, we had technical problems. 
uh, in a in a prior edition, uh, lost the episode entirely. Uh, we were at the end of like a half hour segment, and everything went bye bye. Uh, the guys were generous enough to come back along, and we had another fantastic conversation. Went in slightly different uh, directions, but uh, no one, no one really is working at the level in spatial audio that they are right now. They they're just wrapping up their final, uh, their first season. So if you're hearing this, uh, and there's still a little time for either visitors or double, I believe eternal, unfortunately has wrapped. That is the piece for singletons. And I'm hoping that, uh, either they uh, do a revival in the second season of that, or, uh, maybe it comes back around in the fall. Um, it's such a good piece. It's such a good piece. I, I we made up an award for it this year. Um, so that's our guests next week. And, uh, the, the, the other thing, the thing that I've seen so far at Sundance, other than running around in the social space, and I'll have some notes on the social space. Uh, you know, we did that episode, uh, at the beginning of the year, uh, with, uh, Shari Frilo of, uh, of New Frontier and, uh, one of the co-founders of, uh, Active Theory, Active Theory's people who've made the social space. And, there's, there's some stuff I really am enjoying about the social space, uh, and there's some stuff that's uh, a, a little frustrating. I think it's a little more frustrating in, in, in some ways in VR than it is on browser. Um, but again, so much of this stuff is new, and there's other things they're doing. Like the, the ease of jumping from space to space, I am actually shocked at. I did not expect it to be that easy uh, in WebXR to sort of teleport between social spaces. So... There's a there's there's a lot to be said for that, indeed. Uh, but the other thing that uh, I've checked out so far is uh, uh, Rich Kids: A History of Shopping Malls in Tehran, which is a uh, you know a transmedia piece. Um, it uses uh, it plays out on YouTube and Instagram, and is a really really fantastic piece of work. Um, it's got notes of James Burke's connections of Adam Curtis's documentaries. Um, doesn't, it doesn't have, um, the same aim as F for fake, but lives in that world of the essay movie, but the essay movie recreated for the internet age, leveraging, uh, video and Instagram. And it's all framed as a play. Uh, and it's a, and it is, it's a two hander really. Um, so just, just absolutely fantastic piece of work. Uh, there are, uh, the recordings of it are available throughout the festival, but there's a few performances and I believe it's also, uh, I believe it's also being presented by the public, uh, in New York. I saw that pop through my feed at one point. Uh, so keep an eye out for this piece again, uh, and, and get the Explorer pass. That's one. I think it's worth the price of admission alone. Like that, that 25 bucks well spent just for rich kids. So rich kids, a history of shopping malls in Tehran, you will learn a lot. Or if you know the things you will be reminded of a lot. Um, I, I had both. There were a lot of things I was reminded of and there were a lot of things I learned. And, uh, I just, I just wanted to keep on digging around and discovering more. Um, really Absolutely fantastic piece of work. Okay, I think I've sold you on it now. Uh, <laughs> so that's what I've seen so far. A, a formal review is coming on the middle of writing it. Um, 
a bunch of reviews are coming. Uh, another piece that's great uh, that I saw a couple of weeks ago, the reviews coming for uh, Liberatio 444, uh, which is by artist uh, Elizabeth Stranahan. Oh, God, I can never say Elizabeth's last name right. Stranahan. Sorry, Elizabeth. Um, it's uh, her it's her follow-up to her uh, first piece, um, the, uh, the name of which is escaping me at the moment. Uh, just a lovely one-on-one uh, Zoom-based show, but this has a whole physical package component to it. And um, I, I'm so enamored of it, I'm actually having trouble writing about it. So uh, that's coming up. Uh, I've also got a review that'll come up probably uh, second week of February. Expect my Sherwood and Nottingham review, uh, which has been made maybe a little more a little more uh, topical with everything going on with uh, the Robin Hood app. Uh, they need to change the name on that thing. Anyway, uh, I have not been playing the market, just so you know. I've just I am utterly fascinated by this story. Um, and you know, if months ago. Uh, when it was $4, if I knew they were going to do this, it, yeah, I would have put money in. I mean, come on, $4. Uh, but it's now like $300 for GameStop, you know, which under normal conditions, you would short that stuff because like GameStop is not that healthy. But maybe somebody shouldn't have been uh, overexposed on their short positions up to, uh, with 140% of the stock being shorted, which is physically impossible. Um, maybe we should be changing this entire system. Um Maybe we shouldn't uh, be treating this incredibly valuable. Uh, maybe we should be putting money towards things that make people happy and lets them survive, and you know, not doing all this kind of goofy nonsense so that a few billionaires could be trillionaires. But this isn't a political show. Um, all right, that that's a classic Noah rant for you. A little bit of art a little bit of politics, uh, a lot of bit of coffee. We've got an editorial meeting coming up in a little bit here, Catherine and I, so I got to jet and get this out to you. Uh, let us do the things that get done at the end of the show, namely the credits. Uh, first of all, once again, I want to thank our latest backer, Stephen Zolanis. Um, sorry for... Uh, Sliding in at the last second there, Stephen. Um, we're also going to start. Um, I'm going to, going to change up some of the ways the shoutouts go, just to uh, actually make it easier to be accountable for them. Because sometimes I, I shuffle them in because oh, there's this one person, and then I forget, uh, which is no good. Because I'm spinning a lot of plates these days. Music for No Proscenium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. The sustaining backers of No Proscenium are Mark Baltazar, Jan Budman, Paul F, Sydney Guillory, Lonnie Hanson. Ari Hurston, Emily Gillette, Samuel Mystery, Brittany, and Elaine. Thank you all. And thank you again to our latest backer, Stephen Zelanis. And uh, to our friends at Yes Please Coffee, uh, and who uh, keep us sane through caffeine. Uh, all right. That's enough for me. That's enough for now. I will see you uh, in VR. I will hear you on Clubhouse, maybe. Maybe see you in our Discord if you become a backer. That'd be nice. I uh, would love to see your face. And um, until next time, seriously, thank you for wearing the mask. <laughs> <laughs>